This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Simon Kemp in a two-part series on the state of digital across Asia-Pacific. In the second part of our conversation, we discuss how the digital trends are broken down from China, Japan, Korea and rest of Asia and discuss why Facebook and Tencent have not fully engaged in an all-out war on social across Asia-Pacific. Welcome back. And with me, Simon Kemp, founder and CEO of Capios, global consultant from We Are Social, and most well-known for the digital reports in the whole world 2017. So I got him here in two parts because he has great insights and I was actually enjoying the first part of our conversation. So I think I'm going to now zoom in the second part. I want to zoom down to Asia Pacific a little bit much more in detail. I guess in your analysis across Asia Pacific, are the digital, mobile, and social media trends split just between China and rest of Asia Pacific? There's a definite difference, if you like, between the the digital landscape in China and the rest of Asia. But it's not just China that has a different landscape. So you've still got very distinctly different behaviors in Japan and in Korea. And then obviously around the rest of the region, you've got some more subtle differences as well. But I'm guessing we should probably start with China. Sure. Let's go ahead. Okay, so you've mentioned that you've just been up in China, so I'm, I'm probably going to tell you a few things that you're aware of here. So wh- wherever you've sort of spotted something on your most recent trip, please do add to that because the best thing about digital in China is that it changes every day. So even since my last visit, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that things have changed dramatically. But WeChat still the, the number one sort of platform, if you like, within the Chinese digital economy, if we can call it that. So well over 900 million people around the world using WeChat now, but more than 90% of those people are based in China. Um, And the really interesting thing about WeChat, and I think we may have touched on this in the podcast we did six months ago, so I'm not going to listen to too much detail, but the most interesting thing about WeChat is that it's not just a messenger app. So if you've ever used WeChat outside of mainland China, you'll probably feel that it's, it's relatively similar to other chat apps that you've got out there, whether it's WhatsApp or Line or Facebook Messenger. But once you get into mainland China and you use the equivalent platform there which is called Weixin. It's obviously the same platform, it's just that they've dumbed it down outside mainland China. It's the entire internet in one app give or take. So you've got almost every service conceivable within the WeChat platform. So you can renew your passport, you can pay your fines, you can book doctor's appointments, you can whatever, you name it. And, you know, it's integrated with local government services. It's probably the most powerful mobile payment platform in the world. There's a debate there whether it's between that and Alibaba. You can sort of, you can have your subjective chats around that. But the idea that you can take your mobile device up to a vending machine and then pay for things within that vending machine using WeChat on your phone, you know, you've got a level of integration in China that you just don't see anywhere else in the world. And I find that fascinating. You know, China's sort of gone off on what a lot of people see as a very isolated and insular approach. And yet they have gone so much further, so much faster than any other country, including the US. So, you know, credit to Tencent. They've done an amazing job of not only building a very popular app, but an app that has incredible functionality as well. And when I was in Shenzhen the last few days, and I thought what was the interesting thing is that I don't see a lot of cash handling. 
happening. <laughs> and then I'm a little bit worried that when I was sitting on a cab, whether I need to be able to pay cash and I have to ask the taxi driver beforehand. But thank goodness they do. Otherwise, it would be a mega nightmare for me because everybody is just QR code paying their bills yep. everywhere. So were you seeing that taxi drivers were accepting payment through WeChat as well or were they still taking cash? They actually can accept the payments through WeChat through a simple QR code scanning. So so that was the impressive part. And and what is really interesting for me is because I'm pretty lucky because I, I can speak Mandarin, right? So I set my WeChat into the Mandarin mode. So there is no problem with that. But I think one of the things that in order to activate more services within the WeChat app for me is that I need a China number now. Yeah. Those days where, you know, international and China are over because I think they specifically want your number. They need to make sure that you are locally Chinese. There are some ways to get around it. For example, you get a friend from China to send money into your WeChat account, even though it's international, and then it will flip into the China mode, basically. Yeah. And I think what, what you're saying there's a really important note for anybody that is curious to learn more about WeChat. When I said that the version within mainland China is way much more sophisticated. Unfortunately, it's only available to people that can in some way prove that they are in mainland China. And usually the only way to do that, as you said, is to have that mobile number. And getting a mobile number in China is not the most straightforward thing to do. So I think one of the things that we discussed before the podcast was why WeChat hasn't become more successful around the rest of the world. And it's very much based on that. So the experience of WeChat in mainland China versus the rest of the world is incredibly different because the functionality of the app is different. And I think it's only really once you get into mainland China and you have access to all of that functionality that WeChat suddenly becomes differentiated versus any other messenger app. So I'm not quite sure what the reasons why WeChat and Tencent have not been as successful and in implementing that elsewhere, I would guess that there are some significant governmental barriers to them being able to integrate as well as they have done in China. From what I can understand, Tencent has some very strong partnerships and agreements with the, the government in China, which obviously makes it much easier for them then to implement things like mobile payments. And if you imagine that in the US, the amount of know your customer activities that would need to go on if you wanted to do mobile payments, then you can in, you can sense the barriers for a lot of those companies in implementing those things. And it's probably one of the main reasons why it's been so difficult for country uh, for, for companies in the rest of the world to implement all of these payment systems into their social media ecosystems. So yeah, and I think there is so much that we can learn as an industry from the way that Tencent has built WeChat, but also from the way that their audience has then improvised how they use it to be able to communicate with each other. It, it's fascinating. It, it's particularly difficult if you don't speak Mandarin to be able to understand what's going on. So I would encourage anybody that does not speak Mandarin and has not had a chance to go to China to find a Chinese person, sit them down and ask them to talk about it and perhaps to show them what WeChat is like. Because it's only when you see it firsthand that you appreciate just how powerful it is. It's like the difference between going from a printed book to going to the internet. If, if, you sort of, if you're used to something like WhatsApp and then you see WeChat, you, your mind will be blown. I, I want to get to the rest of APEC because you split Japan, Korea, then the rest of Asia. Correct. What, what are the tools that are really important then? 
yeah, so in those countries, obviously, there is a digital heritage. They're, they're two of the most connected countries in the world. And historically, they have been uh, very quick to embrace technological innovation. So it's it's the sort of place where people will very quickly jump onto something technological that they see value in, and then that will become widespread within the country. So there's that's one of the reasons why they've developed their own sort of unique landscapes. And the second thing is culturally and linguistically, there are platforms that have developed around the way that people in those countries communicate, which is a lot more suited to their day-to-day behavior versus something like, say, a Facebook Messenger or whatever else. So let's start with Japan. You've got Line is still by far the number one most used platform, but I was actually just up in Japan last week and it was fascinating. We were talking to both businesses and to people on the street using their devices. They do not see Line as a social medium, which I thought was fascinating. So when we talk to them about social media, in a Japanese context, they differentiate very clearly between social networks, where things like Twitter and Facebook are sort of, you know, they, they are relatively widely used. Um, Twitter in particular is very popular in Japan amongst uh, younger users, very high levels of use, um, probably the highest level of penetration of any country in the world, although Twitter will not confirm or deny this, frustratingly. And then on the other side of that divide, they've got mobile messengers, and Line is by far the sort of the big champion of that. And the way that people use Line in Japan fascinates me. So in my usual slightly creepy way, I'm standing on the subway and I'm looking over people's shoulders to see how they're using these devices. And you know, you, you still, I think I mentioned this in the last conversation we had as well, but you're still in a situation where people are having entire conversations using emoji and stickers and whatever else. So in China, where you've got people recording their voice, in Japan, it's culturally taboo to talk on your phone, to actually, you know, even to make a great deal of noise on public transport. And obviously an awful lot of communication on these devices takes place on public transport because of the insanely long commutes in cities like Tokyo. So, you know, you're seeing people having very long conversations with each other using these animated stickers, which are a very sort of core part of the line experience. So when you're thinking about social media in these individual countries, I think there's a few different things you need to factor in. There's the kind of device that people are using. And in Japan, the iPhone dominates, which is quite interesting. If you look at the rest of Asia, obviously, Android is particularly popular, but iPhone by far the number one platform. Uh, iOS, sorry, number one platform in Japan when it comes to smartphones. You've then got the cultural context of how people communicate with each other and what they use things like social media and messenger apps for. And then you've got the cultural concept of how people communicate more from a, yeah, from the cultural perspective. I don't know how else to say that in a sort of meaningful way, but it's not like people are just going backwards and forwards in the way that they might do in a conversation, say, in the US. In Japan, there's a great deal more non-verbal communication, even when we're having a face-to-face conversation. And so you need an online platform that can relay a lot more of that unspoken communication as well. That's interesting. Then Korea, is it the same thing? Not quite. Similar sort of concept. So you've got Kakao. Kakao Talk is still the number one platform in Korea. I think what's really interesting is that Line is still popular in Japan, Indonesia, Taiwan, and Thailand. But for Kakao Talk, it's it's really just Korea. So it's, it's losing users around the rest of the world. It's still growing within Korea. So it's still got a fairly strong base in South Korea as a country. The platform itself, again, it, it's built around the the more cultural experience of the way that Koreans communicate with each other. Unfortunately, I've not been to Korea recently, so I don't have any great sort of anecdotes of how people are using it on the ground. But it's very much more that 
you know, they, they have a sense of cultural identity that comes to life through cacao that couldn't really come to life through a lot of the other platforms that are out there. And it's also worth noting that even beyond the messenger world, I think, you know, you, you've got some very interesting specifics within the Korean landscape. So blogs on Naver are still a massive part of the Korean digital landscape as well. So, you know, it, it's those little nuances that, especially from a marketer's perspective, make it really difficult to create a one-size-fits all approach to Asia. We'll go on and speak about some of the other countries in a minute. But just before we do that, I think, you know, setting this bit up that knowing the device or knowing the platform that people use is only the start of the journey. And I think it's understanding the cultural contexts around that and understanding what people are looking for when they use those platforms and devices that is going to be much more important than just looking at the numbers in these reports. So one of the reasons why I make these digital reports available for free is that the numbers that are available in it here, they are incredibly important. But what they're designed to do is to inspire more valuable questions. These are not the answers you're looking for. These are the answers that will allow you to ask the more important questions such as, okay, so now that we know that Japanese people use line, can we as an organization use that to help us achieve the objectives that we've got? And how do we do that? That's a very good point. In fact, I always have a lot of questions about after reading your report. What about the rest of Asia? Is it just like a Facebook, Twitter world or has it been also starting to have some shifts as well? So Facebook is probably the dominant platform everywhere else in the region, although it's always slightly difficult to tell because it's only really Facebook that breaks out its numbers by country. So I have my suspicions that things like WhatsApp may be actually bigger in some countries, but obviously it's still owned by Facebook. So Facebook Inc., <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg and team um, have a lot to answer for. They're dominating the social media landscape around much of the rest of Asia and the rest of the world as well. When you get down into individual countries, you'll notice that the messenger that is the most popular platform will vary quite considerably. So it changes all the time. I'm going to suddenly forget which is which in each country as part of our conversation now that I don't have. I'll definitely link that for, to the report. But I have this little question that is always on my mind. I guess to me, whenever I read your report, I always wanted to ask you what are the most intriguing numbers that you want your audience to know from reading the current one? But the second question, which I forgot to insert in, but I'm not going to insert in is what other numbers or metrics you would like to put into your report? Uh, that's a great question. We'll come to that one definitely in a moment. So the intriguing ones, it's usually the little tiny numbers that surprise me. So I think when I was going through the numbers specifically for this recent APAC report, I spent quite a lot of time looking at the changes in the age profiles within Facebook users. So for most of the countries in this year's report, you will find there's a slide for each country that breaks down Facebook users by age. And it's really interesting to see how that is evolving over time. Everybody says, oh, you know, Facebook's getting older and whatever else. It's actually not that it's getting older. It's just that more old people, old, I'm, I'm going to not say that. Let me rephrase that. People of uh, older generations are adopting Facebook in greater numbers, but that doesn't mean that the number of young people using it has either slowed or stopped. So it's just that the share of young people has now been diluted by obviously those people of older generations coming on as well. But these people saying that the younger generation have abandoned Facebook, it's complete nonsense. There are still significant numbers of younger people. And if you look at the whole of APAC, the 18 to 24 group is still by far the biggest 
of any of the age groups on Facebook. Now, that's particularly driven by places like India, because a huge number of young people using Facebook in India, and obviously, they've just got a very, very large population. So that helped. What was interesting is that you may have seen that there's been a lot of discussion recently about whether or not these numbers are real. So I reported back in March that there are more 18-year-olds around the world using Facebook than there are 18-year-olds alive in the world today. It's those numbers that you kind of go, wait, that, that's not possible. How is, this, how is this happening? Inevitably, there are a lot of different reasons why that's happened. Some of it is down to people misrepresenting their age. So I may be 40 in real life, but I claim to be 18 on Facebook because I'm vain or for whatever other reason. There is also a slightly more sinister reason to this. And in particular, in our part of the world, sadly, you will find that there are a number of profiles that have been created by slightly dubious marketing companies that want to sell advertising to brands and they create a whole series of profiles that match the most valuable audience segments and these are obviously not real users which then tend to inflate certain aspects of Facebook's user base. So Facebook have not quite admitted to this but I've been tracking the numbers over the last couple of weeks and I've noticed that they went through a significant purge. So they actually lost 150 million users out of their user base during September and October. I noticed that they managed to dramatically increase those numbers just in time for the earnings report two days ago. <laughs> so they went back up to the 2.1 billion. But yeah, it, those those are the kinds of numbers that I get really interested in when I'm producing the report is that there's little sort of rabbit holes that you can go down and find all sorts of fascination. But your, your second bit of that question was, what are the numbers that I really want to have? So I've been chatting to a couple of new data providers for the global report that is coming up in January. We've not completely agreed to those terms, so I can't tell you who they are. But what I'm hoping we're going to be able to report in the January report is a breakdown of the most popular apps in use in every country around the world, which will be a really interesting series of insights because I've been tracking that data without being able to publish it for about a year now. And just seeing the changes in the apps that people are using around the world gives you all sorts of fascinating insights into motivations and into culture. And then also hoping that we're going to be able to publish something on the top websites in each country and maybe even something around influencers in each country as well. Although that one is a lot more complicated. So don't hold your breath on that one. That's a nice to have yeah i think it's getting pretty interesting to when i was interviewing gary vinichat recently he mentioned kols which is a china term called key opinion leaders i mean in the west we call influencers right yeah. so it's something that is now becoming more and more interesting in the asia context i want to ask a more future question then mm. From looking at the report this year, what do you see will be the interesting trends coming up in 2018? That's, that is a really good question. I think if you just look at the numbers within the report, they're not perhaps going to tell you the important standout stories. So there will inevitably be valuable stories coming out of the forward-looking aspects of these trends. It's, it's very clear that mobile messengers will continue to take a greater share of social media activity. It's clear that activity on the internet in the less developed parts of the world is going to increase and that's great news but I think those are stories that we're kind of already aware of so as part of the 2018 report there will be a supplementary report that comes with it that talks about some of the the bubbling up trends that perhaps we don't have any data for but based on our research and our conversations with people around the world are trends that we believe people need to know about as well so um, we will be looking at both devices and consumer behavior. So, you know, the use of digital activities. I'm not going to give those away here because I want to save them for the report in January. But 
we've sort of touched on one of them. So I think one of the most important bits from my perspective, I will quite happily talk about um, in advance is going to be the, the importance of voice control. Getting reliable data on that is very frustrating. So if anybody, if any of the listeners have access to numbers that tell me how many people are using voice control in every country in the world, please get in touch with me. I'd be very happy to feature you and give you a big celebration in the report as well. But just based anecdotally on what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing from the people that I'm talking to, voice control is going to be one of the most important developments within the digital and social world within APAC over the next probably, I would say two to three years. It's not quite at a stage now where it's going to be ubiquitous. So I think, you know, if you're looking at a, a very much more forward-looking aspect to your digital planning, especially for your communications, or even if it's just from an SEO perspective, you're going to want to start thinking about voice control right now. There's one caveat to that, though, which is I have a sneaky suspicion that the smartphone as we know it today is going to get disrupted within the next three to five years anyway. So if you, if you look at the changes in the iPhone, much as the new iPhone that just came out is very sexy, it's not dramatically different from smartphones that we've already got. It's just a little bit more desirable. But functionality-wise, it's not really changing as fast as it needs to for those companies to continue charging the same margins as they want. So they're going to need to innovate as well. And much as the smartphones are great and handy device, it's still an awkward form function. You know, it's easy to drop and break. It's not great to use in the rain. If you've got one handful already, then it's, it's not the ideal device. So I have a funny feeling that we're going to see some much more practical device form factors over the next few years that are going to make using the internet on the go an awful lot easier. I have a question on, instead of asking you the most popular tools, I want to ask you, which are the most interesting social media tools that are emerging in Asia Pacific now? And when you say tools, you mean like platforms and... Yeah, that's right. Where it could be platforms or things that, you know, maybe we have not heard of. I mean, in China, I know is Toutiao, which is a news reading app that's, that's taking the market by storm and it was able to grow without the influence of Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent. So I think what you'll probably find is that, again, these, these little standout growth stories are quite cultural. So when I was talking to people on the street in Japan last week, it became quite clear that Snow, you remember Snow? The, the, I remember you talk a little bit about it before. The video, it's a video streaming chat app thing. I'm not entirely sure exactly how it works. That's a very embarrassing admission. But um, so Snow was one of those fast growing, very popular kinds of apps just within Japan. So it's a, it's a Japan Korea kind of focused thing. It builds on that whole adding stickers onto videos and augmented reality style stuff. It's fascinating. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's dramatically innovative. And I don't mean that in a negative way. But then in my mind, it's much more how people take things that exist already and then repurpose them for their own use. Those are the stories that really stand out for me. So wandering around in places like Jakarta and looking at how people use Instagram to to sort of communicate with each other. It's that kind of cultural nuance that really makes me think, ha. Huh. So you, you see people in a lot of Southeast Asia, they've co-opted Instagram as a way of doing peer-to-peer -peer selling. You know, so we've got platforms like Carousel in Singapore where you can sell your secondhand items if you want to get rid of old clothing or if you've got a gadget you want to sell, then there's an app called Carousel that allows you to do that. But in places like Indonesia and stuff, people are actually just doing it straight on Instagram. So they'll snap a picture of something they want to sell and say, I'm selling this for this much money. And all of a sudden you've got 
you know, you've got social commerce of a peer-to-peer nature that's built out of something that was more designed to sort of snap photos of your lunch and similar stuff like that. So those kinds of things I get very excited about because when you see a movement like that appearing from grassroots, you can be fairly sure that some kind of entrepreneur is going to spot that and go, huh, we could take that and we can make it just slightly better, make it an app, and all of a sudden you've got the next 100 million user or billion dollar business out of nowhere. So those are the bits that I'm excited about. Inevitably, we don't really manage to report a lot of those within the report itself, which is one of the reasons why I like writing the blog post that goes with it, is I get to talk about some of those stories. So hopefully I'm going to have some little secrets of those to tell in the January report. So that's my little sort of teaser. Make sure you check back in in January for those. No, I'm definitely checking in with you again. So do you see ad blockers becoming more prominent in Asia for accessing content? Do you know, it's a story that kind of died down. I don't know whether that's because people have stopped using them or because we've just stopped talking about them. I have not seen any data over the last probably nine months that suggests that ad blocking has increased. To be honest, I think a lot of the conversation around that area has moved into the the sort of fake news area. So a lot of ad blocking was hyped by the media. It's, it's still an incredibly important problem that we need to address both as an industry and as individual brands. But I think, you know, we've got to the situation where you've got uh, manipulation of user numbers on social platforms and fake users and stuff like that. I think that's a slightly more alarming fraud concern than the ad blocking thing. But I think if you look at the reasons why people do block ads, the advice that I would give any marketer that's worried about that is if you create things that people actually care about, if you stop trying to interrupt them and you try and add value you instead, there's a very good chance that you're going to get past a lot of the dangers. So if you look at, the, I mean, it's a, an overused example, but it, it's overused for a good reason. Red Bull is one of the most successful brands in digital and social media because they create content that people actively want to watch. If you've ever been to Red Bull's YouTube channel, it is everything that you would kind of expect. If, if MTV had created a sports channel back in the 1990s, it is exactly what Red Bull have done with their YouTube channel. It's, it's amazing. It's full of some of the most wonderful content in the world. And, you know, I, I'm a marketer. I'm aware of these things. I'm very cynical when it comes to marketing activities. And yet I'm very happy to go back to Red Bull's YouTube channel on a regular basis and watch that content knowing that it is marketing. But it's, it's fantastic. It adds value to my life. So Red Bull never has to worry about me blocking their ads because I will seek them out and they're not really ads they're things that add value to my life so that's my tip stop interrupting people with rubbish and add value to their life instead and Red Bull headquarters is in Thailand which is also part of Asia so Correct. I have this final area which I really want someone to talk about and I, I, I thought you would probably be one of the brains that I would pick on because I had a conversation with Matthew Brennan and John Atman in their podcast China Tech Talk when I came as, on as a guest and I, I think I didn't really go in that it's the Facebook versus WeChat conversation <laughs> so uh-huh. yes I'm going to frame it and then maybe you might be able to come back to me and say you know where is this framing going and how do you think so so my view has always been Facebook Messenger should have just cloned WeChat and take them on in Asia, right? They got Dave Marcus, formerly from PayPal, have done a lot in mobile payments, but nothing of that has been, they've been going so slow yeah. and they come up with this strange concept of chatbots and whatever. They were trying to circumnavigate, but they never got there. Then the other part of it, which also frustrates me, is that WeChat should just challenge Facebook's dominance in Asia <laughs> by shifting to high gear in customer acquisition. 
you, you know the unofficial number that I think Matthew was telling me from Tencent on WeChat's overseas audience, I think is in the range of 100 to 200 million users. I mean, 200 million users, let's say we take the max, is almost close to the population of Indonesia, mm. which is 272, right? Yeah. So it always makes me wonder why these two social media giants are so entrenched in their own turfs that they are not willing to take on the other guy on their strength. Yeah, this is a question that's fascinated me for a long time as well. So I have done a little bit of digging into it. This is going to be my personal take on things. So don't take this as a commercial truth. But Yeah, I, I really want to hear your view on this because I, I, you are probably one of the few people I want to like tap you on your brain on that. So I think one of the reasons why WeChat has been so successful within China is the the reality of the managed way that the government controls the internet there. So without, you know, I'm, I'm not going to judge this as to whether or not it's a good or a bad thing that they do. It's simply a reality that there is the great firewall. And because of the firewall being there, the internet experience for the average Chinese netizen is not the same as it is for everybody else. Having said that, once you then look at the way that WeChat has then worked with the government and worked with the different companies that make the Chinese internet work, they've added value to everything and they've integrated carefully, not just with the internet world, but with the offline world as well. I'm not convinced you can take that model outside of China to places where the internet is not managed in the same way. And I think in particular, because of the sort of the closed nature of the sharing of information, there is perhaps a little bit less competition for Tencent. I know that's probably a naive thing to say, because let's face it, there is an incredible commercial competition when it comes to the internet in China. But Tencent has built incredible scale. And, you know, WeChat wasn't their first foray into communication. So they had QQ way back when, which was, you know, the, if, if, you, if Western readers, or sorry, Western listeners to your podcast remember MSN Messenger back in the day, QQ was the same sort of idea. And obviously, they've now evolved that into all sorts of other platforms of which WeChat is the most famous and most popular. I don't think that they could take that, for example, into a market like Indonesia and make it work in the same way because they just don't have the same degree of integration with governmental control and also the same restrictions that have allowed them to grow in that protected environment. Why have Facebook not cloned all of that kind of stuff? I think partly for the same reason. They've not been able to enjoy a lot of that side-by-side partnership, if you like. They've, it would be very dubious, I think, for them to be seen to be in bed with the American government. You can debate whether or not they are seen in that way or not. But I think there is a, a degree of skepticism in the West when a company becomes too involved with a government and they see it as a negative. Uh, I don't know what the sort of the the perception of WeChat's role in China would be if you spoke to a local, but I don't think that that degree of affinity would be as welcome in a Western market. Why have they not done it more around Asia, though, is a good question. I think if you look at the number of people using WeChat outside of China, the numbers that I've got are slightly different to the ones that you quoted. So when we got data from Tencent last time, they suggested to us that it was between 90 and 92% of all of their users are within China. We know that that's gone up since. So the latest numbers, I believe, are around about 94%. But that still leaves you with 60 to 70 million people outside of China using it. However, the vast majority of those are overseas Chinese. So you've, you've kind of the people that are using WeChat on a regular basis are usually Mandarin speakers. And I think that, that's a really important cultural reference point there. And also the WeChat that we see outside of China, as we discussed earlier, is not the same as the WeChat in China. <laughs> I, I wish I knew why 
companies like Facebook weren't able to adopt the mobile payments that we see in WeChat because it's hugely frustrating <laughs> that they're not. I wish I wish that we had an app that was as integrated as WeChat. The one feature that I thought they could have cloned it so easily on WhatsApp is the public accounts in WeChat. Public accounts in WeChat yes. is nothing but a Facebook page, but it has yeah. a very good call to action button. I think Facebook page has been doing that, but for some reason, it just never got integrated into Facebook Messenger. You can imagine mm. a world where I'm a restaurant or I am, you know, some retail outlet and I just create a button to just press and buy like the same way how WeChat does it in China. Mm. So that's the part that frustrates me about Facebook is that it's so reluctant to get into that turf that it just never got beyond where they are. Because I think their problem now is that they are trying to satisfy their investors by their advertising revenue. They are growing gangbusters in those advertising revenue, but it's actually killing their user experience in every single way. So I have heard that they're trying to do more of that integration. Facebook have, if, if you look at what their roadmap from Messenger is, there's definitely that ability for you to go in there and do some commercial activities. But I think, so somebody told me, and I can't unfortunately remember who it was, so apologies if they're listening and I don't give them credit, but somebody was talking to me about this recently. The biggest challenge that Facebook have faced is that they cannot get alignment from the payment providers. So if you think about the, the biggest, the people that stand to lose the most out of this are the visas and the MasterCards of the world. There has been a massive sort of block both from that side of things and also from the banks because they see that as a loss of the control over the ecosystem and I, you know I can understand that fear now whether that's true I don't know this is an anecdote but I can I can see why that would be a significant barrier especially once you start talking about cross-border payments that's the other main advantage for WeChat within China is it's just one country and it already has a relatively closed financial system anyway so if you can get the one or two key players in China on board you win. Whereas if you think about Facebook's battle, you've got to convince the top three banks in Indonesia. You then got to convince the top three banks in Thailand. It's a nightmare. I mean, the amount of people you need to convince and get on board. Even Apple, with Apple Pay, and if you think about how widespread that is, it's not nearly as successful as one might have expected. And a large part of that is just that the payment infrastructure that goes with it is painful behind the scenes because people stand to lose money that they want to protect. So I don't think it's actually down to the platforms that themselves. I think Facebook would love to be a bigger part of that ecosystem, as would almost all of the other platforms. I think it's it's the existing old school financial system that is the biggest barrier to that happening. But as we've seen with things like Uber and Airbnb, it's only a matter of time before somebody comes in and just blows that up. And then it's going to be a mad scramble to see who wins in the new world. So I think that this is changing now. If you look at yes. WeChat in the recent months or Tencent and Alibaba's activity, they are going out to every part of Asia, telling the SMEs to adopt Alipay and Tenpay with QR codes, but to the small and medium businesses, even promising the way how fast they can settle it. And I saw this Twitter picture that's been circulating around an Alipay advertisement in Chinese in London too, saying that we accept Alipay in London please use QR code scanning. And they're willing to basically push all merchants in Southeast Asia to adopt the QR code payments. And I think that's going to be the Trojan horse. Once the business owners start doing it, they will start to induce more customers to download. 
I don't know whether that's going to be the eventual strategy, but that sounds like the right strategy, given that people don't really understand the value of QR code payments, the way it works in China and outside China. Yeah, and I saw the same thing in Japan last week. So on the on the metro in Tokyo, they also had adverts specifically aimed at Chinese tourists, encouraging them to use the Chinese payment systems there. I think that there will be a slight barrier to that. I think you'll find that a lot of foreign governments get slightly nervous about that because there is a significant flow of information that goes with transaction data and there is inevitably that sort of affinity between those companies and the Chinese government. So I have heard plenty of conversations about governments in the West being very nervous about the back doors that are purportedly available within these platforms. I think that would be the biggest barrier to achieving widespread adoption at first is there's a a degree of cultural mistrust, whether or not that's built on any kind of foundation, I don't know, but you know, it's just the way that people are. They tend to not trust foreigners as much as we might like. And that's probably one of the main reasons why things like Facebook and Google are still blocked in China as well. So we will need to find a balance. I think the world increasingly being globalized as it is, there, there will be somebody eventually that achieves that global success. And like you're suggesting, I have a sense that there's a very good chance it will be one of those Chinese companies that gets there first. Simon, many thanks for coming on the show, but I'm not going to let you off without asking you two quick questions. Can you recommend a book, podcast, or anything that has been useful to your work and personal life recently? So, do you know, I just went back and reread the Clue Train Manifesto, which is going to sound very old school for anybody who remembers the first internet dot com bubble back in the late 90s. But I've just gone through rereading a whole series of business books that I found inspiring over the past 20 odd years. And the Clue Train Manifesto, much as a lot of it is very dated in terms of it talks about email newsletters, Usenet and stuff like that. A lot of the advice in there is even more relevant today than it was back then. And it's this whole idea of if you want to succeed in social media, you want to behave like a human being and speak to people like a human. So if you're looking for some basic advice that is not caught up in the latest hype, go back and read the Clue Train Manifesto. And then what was the second bit of your question other than books? Sorry. Other than that, let me just put my recommendation as well. I'm a bit more futuristic. I've just recently (laughs) read uh, Tim O'Reilly's WTF, or he claims what's the future. But I thought one interesting point about that his book was talking about the rise of social media AI and how we could have a different view, how tech companies can have a different view to ensure economic stability for all the different people out there such that we can actually be a more equitable society. My last question to you, how can my audience find you? Uh, So inevitably, you find me on social media. That should come as no surprise to anybody. You'll find me on Twitter and LinkedIn as Eskimon, so Eskimo with an N for November at the end. And if you want to find all of the reports and data that we've been talking about here, you'll find some of the links in there. But the easiest place to get it is kepios.com slash data. And you can find me at Bernard Leong. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast. Tune in and of course, Google Play in the US market. Of course, tweet to me, recommend us on Overcast with a star. And definitely give me a five-star rating on iTunes Store. So once again, Simon, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Brendan. Speak again soon.